Hello, I'm Cara, I'm alcoholic. <laughs> Just recording um, on my friend Paige's phone. I think I'm actually gonna hold this. Okay, um, I'm Cara, I'm alcoholic. <laughs> In my big book, really important. Uh, I want to just start by thanking the Medicine Hat Roundup Committee for putting this on. <laughs> I uh, had the privilege of serving on a Roundup Committee, and I know that it is not easy. It uh, challenged me to look at a lot of my defects of character, continued to date personal inventory, and all of that fun stuff. Um, so. Yay, you, if you're still sober and on that committee, uh, <laughs> good for you. Um, yeah, I think I also want to just uh, thank my family, my husband and my son who are around here, and Paige, my dear, dear friend. Uh, we drove up together from Calgary yesterday, and we came up last year as well. And uh, I heard this quote recently, it's not AA. Uh, but the quote was that I surround myself with a wild pack of wonder seekers. And that really resonated with me because that's definitely how I pray that God manifest in my life today. That the people that are seeking God, the people that are seeking a power greater themselves, that are seeking to make this world a better place, whether that's in Alcoholics Anonymous or not, uh, that they find me <laughs> because I need them desperately. Uh, I need them to show me where I'm straying from the path of the God of my understanding and how to come back to it. And I need them to show me that in a joyful <laughs> and sometimes gentle and sometimes not so gentle way. Um, so I'm very grateful for the fellowship that has grown up among me, um, up around me. Uh, and I have no idea what I'm going to share with you today. I just have been praying for the last few days in my prayer and meditation in the morning and at night uh, that God show me how I can be of service. And I think the first thing I'm just going to say is that I uh, was separated from alcohol by the God of my understanding on April 25th, 2011. And that was in Vancouver. Yeah. And I, I say separated from alcohol by the God of my understanding because um, I don't believe that I personally uh, did that. I did work afterwards, like I had to show up and I've had to continually tend to my spiritual condition and grow in this way of life to connect to the God of my understanding. But I feel that that first like little bit was a moment of grace, right? where God just like stepped in and I had this moment where I could actually have the opportunity to live life differently. Uh, so I was in 2011 and it was in Vancouver. That's where I was born and raised. I uh, moved to Calgary when I was about four years sober and I joined the primary purpose group, which was my first home group in Calgary. My home group is now the Radical Change Group. We meet on Tuesday nights in Calgary at 7 p.m. We're very small. If you're ever in Calgary, please come and visit us. We study the steps, the traditions, and the concepts. And uh, yeah, we just love AA literature and we love what it brings to our lives. So I hope that you'll come visit us. Um, to also just... I, so I listen a lot to the speaker, Mark Houston, uh, who has guided me a lot on my journey. And something he does is he talks about what has he been doing recently in his spiritual life to continue to grow in that spiritual condition that he needs to do. And um, I'm going to tell you that. I uh, just finished like a really big step four and five that I read with three different people, one of whom was my sponsee, uh, which I've never done before. And I did this to be humbled <laughs> and to do something that was new, to have a new experience with the God of my understanding. Um, and I'm starting the six and seven and the eight process, which is going to be really fun. 
uh, I have a sponsor, I sponsor others, and I have service commitments in AA, and I tell you that not to like brag or anything, but to tell you that I take the way that I work this program very seriously, because for me it is life and death. It is still life and death, even though I have some time away from that first drink. I know that without this program and without God, I am absolutely going to drink again. Like that is my step one experience here today, many years dry, right? Um, so maybe I'll go back to the beginning. I can tell you my story. What else? Uh, <laughs> otherwise, I'll just rant for like the whole time and read you stuff from the big book, and that's not necessarily <laughs> why I'm here. Um, <clears throat> um, I had my first drink when I was 16 years old, and it was wonderful. I was with three girlfriends, and we were in one of their basements, and I had four drinks in the little red cups, a vodka with orange juice, another vodka with orange juice, vodka with Coke, and vodka with Coke. And it's really interesting now looking back, now that I know about alcoholism and the disease and all of that. So there were five of us total. Two of them passed out after two drinks, and they were just like gone for the night. You know, like where you draw on people's faces and that kind of passed out. And the other two were able to like continue drinking till about four drinks. And they were just kind of good. Like they just like were like, yeah, this is cool. And then there was me. I had four drinks. It was my first time like drinking, you know, intentionally going out to have drinks. Um, and I just wanted more. I literally was like begging my friend, let's go get more. Where can we get more? Let's go, blah, blah, blah. She was like, Cara, this is your first time. Like, just chill, like enjoy, we're having fun. And I was like, no, <laughs> we need to get more. And thinking back, I'm like, right, physical allergy, phenomenon of craving right away. And the fact that I inherently did not drink the same as those other four girls in that room, right? Like that is the alcoholic body. They did not experience that phenomenon of craving. I did right away. Um, I continued to drink that way because it made me feel good. <laughs> Alcohol had an effect on me. It had an effect on me that nothing else could have. Like that. <sighs> that thing, right? That thing that can make me let go of, you know, thinking about what I look like in front of you, how I sound, if you, you know, like what I have to say, if, you know, I'm going to throw up <laughs> right after this. Like, that is what alcohol does for me. It makes me not think about myself. It makes me think, not think about, um, it makes me not think about how, um, shitty <laughs> I feel on the inside and I think I think looking back I know now that the spiritual malady is something that I've always struggled with it's something that I've always had and that that alcohol was actually taking away and treating for me I think when I first came to AA I didn't really get the whole, like, God thing, right? Why do I need to believe in God? What, is, what does God have to do with alcoholism? I remember I got sober, and I came in through an institution that is not AA, and uh, I was there for a little bit, and a friend of mine came and saw me and was like, oh, thank you for not becoming one of those God people. And I was like, I don't understand, like, why does he, he seemed to have like a prejudice against people who like find God when they get sober. And I didn't really know, because I didn't actually know anything about AA when I came here. I just started coming because it was free. 
and <laughs> accessible. <laughs> and honestly, like my counselor at my institution, uh, outside institution of AA, uh, just like gave me this list of meetings. And it was like this really heavy notebook for AA, a little bit smaller for another fellowship, a little bit smaller for another fellowship, and then like one meeting for like non 12 step meetings in Vancouver. And I literally was just like, okay, I am a person who can't show up to anything, <laughs> who desperately wants to get sober, and that really heavy notebook looks like I'll have a better chance of showing up to stuff, right? And there were like meetings at 7 a.m. and 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. I was like, cool, 2 p.m. is going to be my jam. That's where I'm going to be every day. Um, and so the way I remember it is that like, no matter what, I could kind of just like roll myself into an AA meeting every day and like not really even of my own power. It was just kind of like God was like, come on, <laughs> you can do it, right? And again, barely, like barely my own power, probably mostly God's, right? Um, Sorry, I'm having a little, I can like hear myself half a second after, is it? Yeah, it's really hard <laughs> to concentrate. Um, okay, can you hear? Okay, awesome. Uh, so, I think I just want to talk a little bit about, you know, the drinking period, I guess. Um, and. I also just want to say if like I don't know what the demographic of people here is like if you have not gone through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous with a sponsor I'm not gonna make you put up your hand but please come talk to one of us who has I have my husband here has Paige has I'm sure there's tons of other people like Dave Val like you know there's folks here who can take you through that work and really as speakers here like I think our job is just to inspire you in some small way probably you're not gonna remember anything that I actually said, <laughs> but if there's like one or two little nuggets that I can give you that are useful and that will be helpful in your journey, I hope that that is, um, yeah, I hope that that's the case. Um, and okay, so going back to my drinking, I step, hello, okay. Um, I, I think that's a little better. No, it's not. Um, I, from about, so I started drinking at 16, and from about 18 to 22, I trained in um, a very intense art form uh, called ballet. And I was trying to be a professional ballet dancer, and I was obsessed with this. Um, and I didn't drink, like, at all. I would just kind of drink on weekends. Um, the problem is, is that at that you know, on those weekends I would drink alcoholically and I didn't know it at the time, but during the week I would be so focused on being perfect, on being the best, on making sure I got to the studio before everyone else, on making sure I stayed there until everyone else left, making sure the person in charge saw <laughs> that I was there the longest because I needed them to know. Um, and basically like denying myself any kind of life possible because I just hated myself. I hated it. Hey. Um, hello? <laughs> this sucks. <laughs> okay. I have to hold it down? I think so. It's okay. They're going to need to tape it or something. Yeah, it's like really helpful. Hello? Okay, there we go. Still hearing myself in my head. <laughs> oh God, God help me. What's that? Oh, I hated myself. Everyone remembers that part. Okay. Um, uh, and my only suicide attempt was during that time. I was 19 years old, hated myself, had no solution to my living problem had no solution to my selfish and self-centered attitude, to my self-pity, my self-deprecation, my feeling that I was the worst person in the world and that I had to 
hustle for my work. That's not an AA quote, but that's, yeah, <laughs> that's how I felt. I had to hustle to prove that I was just good enough. But in order to be just good enough, I had to be way better than everyone else. And I was only drinking like on the weekends, so, oh my God. And like, by the time I would get that drink, it was like, oh, thank God. And I remember like, even in my drinking, I would have to prove myself to others. I would need to drink more than, I would be like, ah, I'm gonna show you, you think I'm this little like prissy ballerina, I'm gonna drink more than all of you. And then, you know, the phenomenon craving would set in and I would drink until I passed out or until I was physically stopped from, drink, from drinking more. Uh, I think, so I got sober when I was 24 and it wasn't, my very last drink was on the 23rd of April, and it wasn't that, it wasn't that spectacular. It was after a binge the night before, uh, where I had ended up doing things and being with people and doing things I had never, I had said I wasn't gonna do again, right? all the lines in the sand that I had said, oh, I'm not gonna do this, I'm not gonna do that. If I do this, I'll go to treatment, I'll like, oh yeah, I saw a counselor, an alcohol and drug counselor for the year before I got sober. And I went in to see her every week. And we would make like a plan <laughs> for how I was gonna not drink. And she would say things like, okay, how many drinks are you gonna have this week? And I would be like, eight. You know, that sounds like a normal number. Even though in like my head, I was like, I'm probably gonna have eight on Friday afternoon. <laughs> and, but I would say it and I would believe it. And I love this thing that like, you know, people talk about how if you hook an alcoholic up to a lie detector test, <laughs> sorry, I just, I'm stealing this from distance. <laughs> sorry. Um, if you, hello. <clears throat> Hello. Yay. <laughs> Morning. <laughs> it's because I tried to steal his line. Yeah, this mic is just so bad. Yeah, it's like you think. Okay. Okay, so if you hook that alcoholic <laughs> to a lie detector test, at that moment, <laughs> spiritual condition, if you hook that alcoholic up to a lie detector test when they, in that moment or in that period of time where they are saying, that they're only going to have eight drinks or they're not going to have a drink or they're only going to drink, you know, I, for years I said I would stay away from Malibu because it was Malibu's fault that I drank the way that I drank. Um, <laughs> Malibu's gross. Okay. Um, so they literally will pass that lie detector test because we believe it. We believe it to our core and we are completely, we don't have denial, we have delusion. We have alcoholic delusion and we believe it inside of ourselves that we're not going to drink the way that we did last time. So I would believe it and my counselor would literally write it down in her little book and she would like write down a few other things like, oh, Cara's not gonna hang out with this group of people or she's not gonna do these things or whatever. And then I would come back the next week and she would like bring out the notebook and say, how many drinks do you have? You, you said you were gonna have eight. And I'd be like, I don't know. <laughs> I had eight on Friday afternoon, like I like, knew I was going to in my head. Um, and this just kind of went on for week after week after week after week until uh, one night I went out and I broke my foot while drinking. I was going down one of those firefighter poles in the playground. Because, uh, you know, as we do. <laughs> and uh, I ended up in the hospital with my younger brother. Oh, yes. Yay. Uh, ended up in the hospital with my younger brother and I just remember that feeling of shame, guilt, and remorse that I had as I was sitting in the emergency room with my little brother who had 
picked me up from a city outside of where I lived and had taken me to the ER and I just remember feeling like, how did I get here? How did I become this big sister? How did I become this example for him? That was April 1st, 2011, April Fools, and I got sober 25 days later. Um, my last binge was, I think I said, on the 22nd of April, and on April 23rd, I knew I was going into treatment. I went to my friend's house, who's non-alcoholic as far as I know, and she offered me, she made like a pitcher of mojitos or something fancy, and she offered me a glass. And she was sitting there telling me about her life, there was something going on, you know, she's a very good friend, and I couldn't focus on what she was telling me. All I could think about was that my glass was going to be empty soon and she wasn't offering me anymore. <laughs> and she had put the picture in the fridge, far away from me, and all I could think about was how it was gonna be empty soon. That was my last drink. Somehow, from her house, I was able to float home, not drink for like 24 hours, and then go to treatment the next day. As I said, I started coming to AA out of convenience. I really didn't have any other plans and I really didn't have any other better ideas. I just knew that my life wasn't going the way that I wanted it to and it didn't, wasn't going the way that I had imagined when I was a little kid like my son is now, right? Like that's not the life that I had truly imagined for myself. I started going to a lot of women's meetings because I was terrified of men. I was terrified actually of what I would do in a room full of men because I'm selfish and self-centered <laughs> and I had a track record of being a person that will take and will steal and will hurt anyone regardless of what relationship I actually have with this person or what relationship I have with the other people in that room. I started going to these women's meetings and just crying and lying on couches and holding fuzzy uh, stuffed animals and being hugged uh, a lot and being told that I was really cute and <laughs> and uh, just getting like a lot of like people gave me free stuff it was like really nice because um, I was on welfare and I, I like couldn't show up to anything and um, I was living in this house where everyone smoked weed and <laughs> that was fun um, and eventually I ran into some people who were like, here's a list of other meetings that you should go to. And I didn't really know what they were. And I was like, okay, this person seems kind of cool. I'm gonna, like, cool was really important for me when I came into AA. If you were cool, I would like, if what I perceived as cool, I would do whatever you said. Um, and I think it took about four or five months of being in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous I think I had a big book at the time, but I wasn't reading it with anyone. I wasn't doing any of the work. I wasn't doing any of the stuff that is directed in the big book for us to do. I was going to a lot of meetings. And I'll, what I'll say about that is that, like, meetings are wonderful, right? It's where we connect with our people. It's where we might hear our stories. It's where people share things that inspire us and keep us going on the journey. Mark Houston in Steel on Steel, which is the spiritual exercise that he created, um, talks about how the spiritual path can get lonely. And sometimes we need other people who are on that path to hold us to account as steel sharpens sharpen steel. So one man sharpens another. Um, and I personally think that for me, like that's what meetings are for, is to like, no matter what, always there's gonna be an alcoholic that I can help, there's gonna be an alcoholic that I can hear from, there's gonna be an alcoholic that can, you know, just kind of walk this path with me, right? But if I'm not doing the personal work, the personal work that only I can do, I'm gonna feel really lonely in the rooms of AA, I'm going to feel really fearful. I'm going to start feeling really, I remember feeling really lost. Like, 
everybody in the meetings is talking about something that I want and that I intellectually understand, but I don't really experience on a daily basis. Like if I'm sitting in my room in the recovery house where I was living, I'm sitting in my room all alone, I'm not able to feel the presence of God. I only feel it in the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's not really going to work for someone like me. Because <laughs> uh, I, first of all, physically can't be in meetings 24 seven, but also I believe that the God of my understanding wants me to live a life outside of these rooms. Um, what's more, I can give very little to Alcoholics Anonymous if I don't have a God of my understanding, you know, propelling me every day. I thought the word propelling because it says that in step three that most people live by self-propulsion. I want to live by God propulsion, right? And I do. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like I'm this little marionette. Like in the morning, I'm just like, I have no power of my own. And I just go, God, please fill me up with your power and your strength because I got none. And it's like, wah, yes. That's how I made it here this morning, you guys. That's how I made it here. <laughs> um, so I started going through the work with my very first sponsor, Natalie. I'll tell this story because it really shaped the way that I think about sponsorship and the way that I practice sponsorship. Natalie was about seven years sober. She uh, was dating a guy in AA who was like a couple years sober. And we had heard through the fellowship gossip grapevine that he had cheated on her and it was like messy. And he had cheated on her with someone in AA and like scandal. And we never do any of that, right? Um, and I remember somebody after a meeting asking me, Cara, if you need, wanted to ask someone to take you through the steps today, who would it be? And I was like, Natalie, because Natalie was awesome. She walked the walk. She, after meetings, she would talk to me and she like just had this grace and she had this like ability to just like speak the truth without being like, you know, angry, but also without being like super passive. She was just able to be herself and comfortable in her own skin. And I didn't know how to do that. And I was like, okay, Natalie. And they were like, okay, great, call Natalie. You have her number, ask her to take you through the steps. And I was like, but she's going through this big thing. Like she was just cheated on. She needs to like cry and like, you know, commiserate with her friends and like whatever I thought about what happens when we go through that kind of thing. And my friend said to me, you know, Natalie might need you more than anything right now. And it was, a, I mean, looking back, it was so interesting. Natalie would show up to a coffee shop and she would clearly have just been like crying because her boyfriend was moving out of the house and it was happening all very like publicly in AA and all of this stuff. And, you know, I would ask her how she was and she would be like, you know, not great, but better now that I'm here. <laughs> and then we would pray and she would like light up and you could see that like, you know, the, the, even, like I could even see it in her, right? And it was probably happening in me as well. <laughs> but um, it's just this like beautiful thing where she showed me and she said to me, you know, you don't owe me um, anything for taking you through the steps. What I ask is that when you get to step 12, you turn around and do the same thing. And she kept saying, every time I, you know, I'd finish the steps with, uh, finish the reading the big book with her, I would say, thank you. And she would say, thank you. Like, you are getting me through this. You, like, you, and she would tell me about what she was doing to get through this difficult time in her life. She was like, I'm more, I'm seeing my sponsor more. I'm going through the steps again. I'm doing amends. I'm doing this. I'm sponsoring more people. Like, all these sponsees just came out of nowhere for her, right? Like, suddenly she had all these newcomers to work with. And she showed me, like, what 12th step members of Alcoholics Anonymous do. When life gets tough, we dig into service, we dig into getting out of self, we dig into sponsoring, we dig into helping the newcomer because that's what keeps us connected to the God of our understanding. That's what guides us through these difficult times, right? And I couldn't have asked for a better example than Natalie, right? Um, one of my biggest fears when I got to step 12 was like, I was 24. Um, I'm pretty like short in stature. I have always thought of myself as kind of like, 
I'm quiet and timid and like nobody will listen to me and like that was like my biggest <laughs> my biggest fear <laughs> and, uh, that no one would want me to sponsor them because I was like too young and I remember of course my sponsor had like did not want to hear about that she was like okay there's a young people's meeting go to that join it be of service find some sponsees there uh, I had another home group as well. I had three home groups for the first year. <laughs> um, <laughs> couldn't decide. Um, and interestingly enough, none of my first monsies were younger than me. They were all older than me. And like God just showed me, right? God just showed me that it didn't matter. What Natalie drove home to me was that as a sponsor, my job is to take someone through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, to guide them as I was guided, to pray that God speak through me and that I not bring my opinion <laughs> um, as, as much as possible, you know, as much as possible to not bring my opinion into the process. I remember Natalie was really good at that. She would say, well, this is my opinion, <laughs> so you can pray about it. <laughs> um, but whether you do it or not is like, you know, whatever or she would say this is my experience this is you know when i had a similar situation and i did this and i did that and this is what happened and you can take that as you will and this is what it says in the big book of alcoholics anonymous which was written specifically for a person like you we used to play a thing called eight ball big book uh where i would come to her with a problem and if she couldn't think of a place in the book she would just go, God, please show us a place in the book. And she would do this. And then she would open it up and just read that page. And it would always be perfect. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Damn it. Um, should I be aiming to stop at 10? Yeah. OK. No one said anything, so I'm just going to say no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, why not? Um, so sobriety. Sobriety is pretty cool. Um, emotional sobriety. So I moved here to Calgary and I, uh, it was the first time that I actually uh, felt like I might drink. Uh, six months after I moved to Calgary, I didn't get a sponsor right away and I didn't start sponsoring right away, I think is really like the biggest thing. And I remember I'm a person who in sobriety, I fall into a place of not showing up to things, telling people I'm going to show up to things and then not. This includes jobs, meeting with friends, coffee dates, volunteering, all the things that I have all the intentions in the world, you know, because I ultimately want people to like me. <laughs> so I say yes to stuff without actually thinking about it, without actually thinking, what are the steps that are going to, you know, it's going to take for me to go and do this thing and do it well and do it in the way that I think the God of my understanding wants me to do. And then when that thing comes up, I just don't show up because I'm so full of fear and so self-centered and scared and I can't summon the courage or the strength to do it. And this is a pattern that has uh, shown up in my inventory for a long time. Thankfully, thanks to God, I uh, have been free of this thing for a little while. I think having a child has really helped <laughs> because I literally can't get away. Um, uh, but that's where I felt in that time when I first moved to Calgary and I wasn't sponsoring and I wasn't being sponsored and I wasn't growing in my spiritual condition. Uh, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, like, I couldn't life, just couldn't life, guys. Uh, and eventually, I was with a guy that I had to leave, and I ended up starting a 12-step and 12-tradition study at my home, sponsoring, like, five women at once, going through steel on steel. I'm looking over a page, page fellow steely. Steely, steely. Uh, going through that, you know, jumping right back into service. I remember before I jumped right back into all of this stuff, I remember getting in my car one day, actually my boyfriend's car at the time because I didn't have a car, and just driving around Calgary crying and feeling so trapped. Like, what am I going to do? Because if I go back, if I go to a meeting and I tell anyone, if I go to a meeting and I tell anyone, that I haven't been perfect at working this program, 
they're gonna judge me and they're gonna know <laughs> they're gonna know <laughs> right and I had to find a small group of people that I felt comfortable enough to tell them everything to people who had earned the right to hear my story who had spiritual license in my life to continue telling them how fucked up I was in sobriety even after having worked the steps and had some spiritual experiences and being able to sit in a meeting and talk about the book. I think the last maybe six years, that's become so much more important. I think since having a kid, so I got, I had a kid five years ago, got married six years ago. <laughs> um, and my fellowship has changed quite a bit. I used to be able to go to a meeting every night. I used to be able to meditate for an hour in the morning and, you know, do all my spiritual disciplines at night and like just have like all of this wonder. I used to live in this like apartment where I had no furniture and I would just like stretch and play spiritual music and like light incense and I'd be like, yeah, this is amazing. And like talking to my sponsees till two in the morning. I can't, that's just not, no, <laughs> it's just not gonna happen in my house anymore. And it's forced me to dig deep. It's forced me to go, okay, what else? What else, God, am I missing? What other practices are there that I can that I can bring into my toolbox, right? And in the last two years, I can say that I am practicing spiritual disciplines that I never thought I would outside of AA. Um, I am looking at AA in a totally different way than I ever thought I would. And it's beautiful. It's really freaking beautiful. Like, I think I used to be more focused, a couple of years ago, I was more focused on quantity. Like I have to be doing, doing, doing all the time, this, that, I have to have a million people calling me. I have to have like, you know, this feeling of like chaos almost in my life. And today I'm like, no, I'm enough with whoever God has put in my life or whatever God has put in my life. And that's a result of inventory. That's a result of prayer and meditation. That's a result of working with others. I made this little card. Um, it's from the chapter, Working With Others. And I literally just made, it's like a to-do, a step-by-step -step of how to work with others because I become a little bit obsessed with how do we talk to newcomers? How do we tell them about what AA is? How do we make it so that they feel welcomed and wanted and needed in Alcoholics Anonymous? And how do I do that from a place that's not me, where I'm thinking I know what Alcoholics Anonymous is from my perspective. I'm not thinking about them at all. One of the very first things that it says on page 90 is that we find out all we can about this person, which I feel is very different from what maybe my selfish and self-centeredness wants to do when I meet a newcomer. When <laughs> I meet a newcomer, my selfishness and self-centeredness wants to tell them all about what I think about AA. But what the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says is that I'm to find out all I can about them, which means I need to learn how to listen, and I need to learn how to put my ego aside and my judgment aside, because when I'm judging that other person, I'm judging myself. That's something that came out of my most recent inventory, is that whatever I'm feeling about other people, it's what I'm feeling about myself right now. And I can't feel better about myself without feeling an unbreakable relationship to God. And I want to say this for anyone, because I said the word God a lot to this morning. Jeez. Um, I think the God of my understanding has become more broad and more nebulous and more loving and more radical than it ever has before. And I hope that that continues. And what that means is that 
I no longer think that I have to do certain things for the God of my understanding to love and care about me. So yes, I personally need to do certain things to feel that presence of God and to feel that connection and to feel like inspired and happy and excited to do stuff in the world. <laughs> um, but even when I'm not doing those things, the God of my understanding is there and like rooting for me and like, yeah, girl, you got this, you know? And like, just waiting, just like waiting for me to come back. I almost feel like God loves those moments when I'm a little bit away because the God of my understanding knows that when I come back, it's gonna be better and stronger. I want to say this as well. The God of my understanding is completely personal and completely, like, I don't like to talk about what my concept of God is in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And one of the reasons for that is because I don't want to put that on you. I want you to go out there and have your own experience with the God of your understanding. And I don't want you to have those ideas of like what I think God is. So I try to be very, you know, limited about what I say in meetings. But what I will say is in step three, and I'm just going to read it from the book. Page 62. So this is the how and why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. Next, we decided that hereafter in this drama of life, God was going to be our director. He is the principal, we are his agents. He is the father and we are his children. Most good ideas are simple and this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which we passed to freedom. Excuse me. When we sincerely took such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. Being all-powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we can contribute to life. As we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We were reborn. There's four descriptions um, of the relationship that I'm to cultivate with the God of my understanding in here. One is that God is the director, and earlier it talks about the actor. God is the director, I am the actor. So the director of the film knows everything that's going on in that film. They know the script, they know who's doing the lights, they know who's doing the camera, they know what time people are showing up. The actor gets their little script, highlighted words only, <laughs> shows up at a certain time, does their job the best they can. The other one is God is the principal, we're the agents. There's a few things, like a few descriptions that I've found of principal. So this is principal with a P-A-L, which I'm told is, and it's with a capital P as well. I'm told that principal written in this way is a being with the most power. And I think if we talk about like, you know, CIA and, you know, agent and principal, it would be that the principal, the one with the most power, gives agency to the agent to work on behalf of the principal. So I, as an agent of God, have been given the consent, enthusiastic and willing consent from God to go out and act on his behalf. Pretty effing cool. <laughs> An agent of God's ever, what is it? Ever advancing, a spearhead of God's ever advancing creation is what, our, is what our big book talks about. Next, we have father and his children. Father, a parent, is unconditionally loving, guides, I'm looking at my kid. <laughs> Guides, loves no matter what, sometimes disciplines to keep us safe. Like, put that knife away, <laughs> put the scissors down, get out of the street, because <laughs> you're going to die. <laughs> um, and that's what God does for me sometimes, right? 
My uh, first sponsor used to call it the God cock block. <laughs> There's nothing you can do against a God cock block. If you are centered in your, in your sex inventory and sex ideal, you, just, you can't. Um, so God is the father and I'm the child. When I look up the word child, obviously it's like, child, son or daughter of parent. Um, but it also has words, the dictionary also has words like naive, innocent. And to me, I take that to mean open, teachable, blank slate. Can I come to Alcoholics Anonymous? Can I come to this day? Can I come to this world with a feeling, with a, with a mind of openness, with a mind of a child willing to learn? Usually no. <laughs> usually I can't. Uh, usually I need a lot of help in that. The last one is employer-employee. God is my employer. God gives me a job. God gives me enough to eat. God gives me, you know, a way to earn a living in this world, in this, like, container of a world that we're in, you know, in this field, I don't know, in this plane. It's just one way. I don't know what else is going on out there. Um, not my business. And I'm the employee, and I'm to show up. I'm to do the work that is in my job description. <laughs> Mostly my job description comes from here, first and foremost, and then I can expand from there. Um, and it says, as I feel new power flow in, as I enjoy peace of mind, as I discover I can face life successfully, as I become conscious of his presence, I begin to lose my fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter I've reborn. The last thing I'll say, because it's 10.05, uh-huh is a few years ago I had an experience with the chapter uh, We Agnostics, where it talks about the little electrons. And it really helps me, and maybe this will help someone else, I don't know, really helps me when I'm going through a time where I don't understand, where I don't know what's gonna happen next, to remember that I am made of electrons. I am made of little tiny bodies that no one can see with the human eye, right? We need a power much greater than ourselves to see those things. We know that this podium looks like it is hard and solid on the outside, but we know that if we look closer, it is full of little tiny electrons moving at incredible speeds, doing their thing. They know what's up. They don't need us to tell them, be a podium. They're being a podium. And I'm made of the same thing. I'm made of the same thing that the trees and the water and let's get all hippie, but I'm made of all of the same things, right? I'm made of all the same things as you. And our bodies, you know, just form bodies. <laughs> and our lungs just form, you know, the ability to breathe. And I don't have to do anything or force anything to make that happen. And if I can believe that, then maybe I can believe that it's the same with my life. Maybe I can believe that it's the same with every one of you. You know, God has a plan for you. You're just going around, vibrating around like a little electron. And I'm doing the same thing. And we're just following our little paths. And we're forming something that we can't even imagine. Look at AA. Like, look at AA. How could they even have imagined that this would happen? Okay, I'm going to say the final thing. I love Alcoholics Anonymous um, because at heart I'm an anarchist. <laughs> and I freaking love our structure. I love the way we are so structured to be so unstructured <laughs> and i and i realize that we are organized like it says we ought not be organized but what it means by that is that we don't have one person at the top telling us what to do and to be truthful that's one of the things that drew me to aa i was like fuck yeah let's get in there i don't want to be told what to do and it's still the truth you guys the thing that happens in aa that like makes us lose hope is that we don't take part right if we want to see something happen in AA, we can show up to that meeting, that party business meeting. Yay! The party at the business meeting. Um, we can show up and we can use our voice. For me as a person who I'm naturally quite shy, what really helped me to start speaking up and using my voice in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous was being told that I mattered, that my voice mattered, understanding the minority opinion that we listen 
to the small, quiet voice in the back because we know that God can speak from anywhere. We set aside our egos. <laughs> we set aside our selfish ideas of where we think AA should go. And we actually try to cultivate this group God consciousness all together. The, all these little electrons buzzing together, creating a God consciousness. Like how fantastic. I'm not a scientist, by the way. And I know that there's at least one in the audience, so I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I think I'm going to finish there and just say uh, thank you for listening. Um, thank you for being here with me this morning. Thank you for, I'm going to actually just say a prayer. God, my creator, higher power, spirits, universe. I want to thank you for bringing us all here this morning. Thank you for our sobriety. Thank you for our recovery. Thank you for everything that you've given us, everything that you've taken away. Thank you for all that you continue to do. Without you, we are nothing. Thank you for giving us this incredible way of living in this book. Thank you for everyone that has come before us who has done this work when they were tired, when they were sick, when they thought they couldn't keep going. And thank you for giving us that example so we can do the same. I ask that if there's anyone in this room who is struggling, that you please be with them and surround them with your love. Surround them with people who are seeking you. Surround them with people who will step up and show up at 3 a.m. when they need you. God, I ask that you please help us to be kind and loving to one another this weekend. Help us to feel your spirit. Help us to see your spirit in all things and help us to make a difference out there in this world. Help us to always have our hand out to the still suffering alcoholic as a fellowship. Help us to be present this weekend so we can have a new spiritual experience and continue to grow in our understanding of you. Thank you. That's all. Thank you. <laughs>